Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. Welcome to another episode of This Month in Sales Enablement. My name is Felix Kruger, and as always, I'm joined by Sales Enablement Royalty straight out of Kelly, California, Devin McDermott. How are you, Devin? Hello, Felix. I am doing well, and much like the rest of the world, I am currently roasting here in Palm Springs, California. It is 112 degrees Fahrenheit, which I think is 44 Celsius. So, oh, wow. Toasty over here. How are you doing? <laughs> very well, very well. It's actually uh, freezing over here at the moment. Oh, uh, very rainy right. and yeah, Australian winter at its best. Ah, uh, I love it. Yeah, it's uh, funny to hear that you're roasting, just like the folks in the UK that I know declared some sort of state of emergency with 38 degrees. That's bad. It's hot everywhere. Global warming, I guess. Yeah, what better to uh, cool off with than a bunch of sales enablement insights? I say, but exactly. I have to warn you, I'm a bit, I'm not sure if I'm disappointed or if I'm actually mad, but we'll get into that in a second. Uh-oh. There's a couple of things that we'll touch on later on. My gripe is specifically with Gartner and LinkedIn. Okay. We'll get to that later. I'll, I'll push those negative <laughs> feelings to the side. Save the negativity for later. It's okay. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, on another note also for anybody who's interested, a couple of episodes ago, I think we announced that I have been crowned a sales enablement influencer. Yes. And as part of my influencer status now, I embarked on my weight loss journey and I treated myself to the first weight training session in a few months. Nice. Just yesterday. I cannot feel my legs or my arms uh, right now. So <laughs> You know it's working. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So if I slip off my chair halfway through the episode, you know what's wrong. Oh my gosh. But Devin will take care of you in the meantime. Well, you got it. All right. So let's get started with some insights on the state of sales enablement. We had a bunch of awesome interview guests last month, including Vince Sapula, who is a consultant who is essentially a fractional sales VP. And he specifically works with early stage startups and helps them to set up the sales team, but also does a lot along the lines of sales enablement. And he had a few interesting things to say about product market fit and let us take a listen. Unfortunately, only, I'd say only 20% of the founders I meet with have nailed their product market fit. Most of them focus too much on what they're offering and how it's better than anything else in the market. And. Your friends and family care about you, but the prospects you're going after, all they care about is their issue and whether or not you could fix it. And if you don't know what their issue is, you're not going to get them to respond. All right. So I think what's really interesting, what he describes here, he talks about startups trying to find their product market fit in market and essentially be customer centric in the way they go to market and in the way they establish their product market fit from a sales enablement point of view, this is obviously a hot topic, no matter what set of organization you're dealing with, because as we all know, the feature of the functions pitch is still a problem, you know, which is the equivalent of what he's telling here about just going out there, telling everybody how your product is better than anything else in market without actually relating it back to the customer problems. Yep. So Devin, I'm curious to hear you as a practitioner, 
Is that uh, something that you still come across in your dealings with sales teams? The features and function pitch, is that still a life issue or is that <laughs> something that as Vince said is more limited to the startup space as he describes his experience? Yeah, and, and very quickly, Felix, we were not able to hear the clip, but you captured everything that was in there perfectly. So for folks that were not able to hear it, I think you, you captured the gist of it. In my organizations, thankfully, we tend to steer away from the very generic features and function pitch. I tend to be a huge fan of the challenger sale, especially in, in very specific new business situations, because it's all about the buyer and helping them to see their challenges and problems in a new light. And it, it helps them to really to make their problems feel very urgent and very important. So in my organization, thankfully, we get it. But I purchase a lot of software and I talk to a lot of tech vendors. And I cannot tell you how many times I have been subject to their meeting flow, their cadence, what they wanted to show me versus them actually listening to my problems and use cases. And so like, I am a very easy person to uh, sell to because I'm going to tell you all of my problems, all of my issues, but so many companies aren't listening. And so, you know, my intention is always, I want to speed up the sales cycle for you. I want to get on the same page. But I find so often that organizations are still very much like following their process, their selling approach and not thinking about the buyer and what, what do we need? Like from my experience working on client projects, this is something that a lot of clients or hardly any company that I deal with really thinks about is about establishing that feedback loop between sales and the rest of the organization in order to establish exactly that. Especially when you think about disruption of new competitors entering the market and new products being introduced that actually respond to those challenges that you are yeah. not listening to because you're too focused on your product. I think this is the best protection against disruption to actually have that feedback loop and yeah. actually revisit that product market fit on a regular basis and actually utilizing the sales team in creating that feedback loop. So I think absolutely crucial exercise to go through. And yeah, it's interesting to hear that it continues to be a challenge. And yeah, I totally understand what you're saying there in terms of the people pitching to you. Yeah. It still happens to me a lot of times as well. And Obviously, because I operate in the sales space or we operate in the sales space, I think it's pretty interesting to see that vendors try to sell to us any sort of services or technology that's supposed to support sales don't actually do sales well themselves. You know, so I think no, uh, it's wild. Pretty funny. And I think the most shocking bit is always when sales training companies, you know, operate in that way because yes. they should really know. Right. Like they should be the stars of this world. And I'm like, come on, I, I'll, I'll give you the BANT criteria, whatever you need. Just listen to me. But yeah. Yeah. All right. So our next clip, let us take a listen. So often we treat it as a numbers game. And when you are chasing a quota, you forget a little bit that you are just interacting with a human. It's not business to business. It's actually human to human. All right. Human to human selling. I think it's funny that this is even a term, right? Because have we ever been at that stage where we sell API to API or... Any day now. No. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So uh, I think it is a reflection of how systemized sales, especially in the B2B space, has become, especially with all the focus on data and metrics. Yeah. There's oftentimes a discrepancy between the high-level go-to-market strategy, the high-level business strategy those really lofty growth ambitions, those aggressive revenue targets. And then on the other, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the people out in markets 
interacting with the buyers and actually trying to build that human relationship. Yeah. It is funny that this is actually a term, I think. I think it's just a reflection of the disconnect between those data-driven go-to-market strategies versus the actual reality of sales. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and it totally makes sense. And I also feel like there's still a lot of fear, especially in sales and CS. Like if I say the wrong thing, it's going to ruin everything. And so sellers and sometimes even customer success managers will treat their customers or their buyers with kid gloves and forget that these are real people who just like some of us have bosses they don't like and kids at home and stress. And it's all about like treating them as human beings with real problems and challenges, being transparent, making it easier for them to buy from us without wasting time or being too robotic or focusing too much on our sales checklists and, and the things that we know we have to do to get the deal done. But those things exist as well, to your point, because there is so much organizational pressure. So I know we're going to talk about Todd Capone's book in a little while, but he does talk about like even rethinking some internal processes and strategies to make it easier for the sellers and make it easier for our buyers. But it's such a real thing, this fear of the buyer or the customer saying the wrong thing. That's right. That's right. I think that also comes with seniority. Yeah. I think a lot of times the more senior salespeople in products that have more room for customization, they are more consultative in their approach and they are more readily moving away from the sales process and the sales methodology and really adopting to whatever the buyer is saying or whatever they hear within the comments that the buyer says. The challenge that I see interacting with a lot of sales organizations is that the, the junior sellers, because they don't have that experience to draw from, they oftentimes hold on to the sales process and the sales methodology as a guide. For them, it's really like about security and yeah. being able to perform in front of that scary buyer. <laughs> they try to fit the buyer into their sales process, yeah. not the other way around. They don't try to adopt to the buyer. So I think it is probably also to a degree a challenge of actually creating that buyer acumen and creating that understanding of buyers before the interaction happens to create that security and that fluency in actually adopting to the buyers. You know, I think mm -hmm. if that is not the case, if you don't have any buyer acumen to hold on to, you hold on to the process and methodologies. And that's, I think, where you move away from that human to human sales mindset. Right. You're filling out the checklist and making sure your manager doesn't yell at you instead of actually curating a really powerful, mutually beneficial environment. That's right. That's right. Okay. So next up, we have Roderick Jefferson. He was on the show. He's a rock star of sales enablement and one of the most visible and most decorated sales enablers out there. I always love talking to him. Let me just share with you what he had to say in the latest episode. There are a lot of people that lean on their laurels of, I was a rock star at XYZ company. I went to President's Club 12 times. That's great for the company that you worked at, but that's not where you are now. So this specific clip, just to give you some context about the episode, we were talking about strategic talent development and how you, considering that salaries in building out a sales department are pretty much the highest cost item. And if you're a senior leader, you obviously want to maximize the return on investment. And what better way to do that in actually developing your sales talent and actually being strategic about developing talent. Roderick shared a whole lot of thoughts on that. And in this particular part of the conversation, he was talking about the hiring process and 
how to actually make sure that you get the right talent on board in the first place. And he touched on something that I thought really interesting here, which is the sourcing of top performing sales talent from other organizations that might not necessarily fit into your organization and how you actually navigate that process. And what actually becomes clear very often, and I think it's true for sales as it is in a lot of other professional contexts and also sports, funny enough, you see it all the time, you know, like you have a top performing player changing teams and suddenly the environment changes and they don't perform anymore. Everybody is yep. wondering what's going on. And I think that really goes to show that past performance doesn't indicate future performance. And it's really important to actually see behind the numbers of the sales rep to actually see if that person is right for the organization. And I wanted to ask you in terms of the hiring process and your experience from previous roles, like how much was sales enablement in your previous roles and you involved in actually defining those traits to look for beyond those sort of general performance indicators that you would look at when hiring a salesperson, like those indicators that really show how well somebody can be coached, how well somebody is willing to adapt to a new sales environment, a new sales process. What was your experience there? Yeah. So in earlier roles, we definitely were not involved. And this was at companies that didn't have set competencies or career ladders. So it was very much like, we think this is the right person. And then we would jump in and say, okay, let's onboard everybody. And it was all very generic and basic. And we saw not great results, right? So I sort of made it my business to get super involved in general competency scoping and behavior scoping for the teams that we support. Again, wherever the organization finds it's most appropriate, but I think really leaning into who is that ideal rep profile for your business and understanding that somebody who is a rock star at another company, maybe a massive company like Salesforce or Adobe, might not thrive in a super fast SaaS startup environment, right? You have to think about all of the different factors, not just is this person an amazing seller? Do they come with great contacts and a great reputation? But is this the right person to operate in our business? And I think it's, it's really important for enablement to tap in with HR, with sales leaders, to make sure that, A, we all have a very clear understanding of the environment that we work in. What tech do we have available? What resources, what type of process, methodology, how buttoned up are we? And what is the right type of rep to execute effectively in our environment with our specific customers? So it's super important. And again, historically, enablement had not been in the room for these conversations, but I've seen things go not so well when we're not involved or when we don't have that infrastructure in place. So I tend to insert myself into those conversations and help to shape it. Because it, again, it helps us to shape more effective, hyper-targeted programming, and it helps us to ramp faster, move our reps to productivity faster. So we're not always welcome in those conversations, but I think it's essential for enablement to be involved in whatever way is appropriate for the organization they're in. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think ultimately it is also beneficial to the frontline sales managers, because obviously if you hire talent that cannot be developed in the right ways, that ultimately impacts yeah. them as well. And I think one of the main things that I've seen, you know, like which companies still get wrong a lot of times is startups and small companies sourcing high-performing sellers from large businesses. And the main problem that I see is with those sellers that have been in large businesses for their whole career, right? And have been used to actually everything or to all those sales support services that you typically don't have in small companies. And exactly what you often see in those kind of scenarios is that there's a missing resourcefulness. So that's kind of a broad theme that I've seen over time. Yeah. 
smaller companies and startups getting wrong over and over again is ignoring the fact that there's a massive difference in resourcefulness depending on what previous experience a seller has had in the past. Exactly. Cool. So next up, we have Stephanie's job posts. So for anybody who's been living under a rock, Stephanie Zorabian <laughs> is a sales enabler who has started curating a lot of sales enablement roles that are out there. She does a really great job in actually summarizing them in weekly posts. And she has had this job post summary for a while now, but we just wanted to, again, give a shout out and feature that again in the show. On that note, we'll also start sending out monthly newsletters for this month in sales enablement, which is essentially the collection of all the links and resources that we share in this show. So for anybody connected to me on LinkedIn, you should receive a notification whether or not you want to subscribe to this month in sales enablement. So you'll have another way to actually access all those resources that was based on a lot of requests that we have received over time. So we'll finally make that happen. So yeah, I hope you find that useful. We'll also always include Stephanie's job posts. So yeah, just in case you're looking for a new role or you're interested in what's going on out there, this will also be included. But Devin, what's the situation in the, in the States right now in terms of all the redundancies? So I heard there have been a lot of redundancies, especially in the startup space. What's happening right now? Like, what's your impression of the job market in the U.S. right now? Yeah, I think it's rough. There are a number of companies. I know a number of folks that I am connected with are experiencing challenges right now. But what I have noticed is there are more enablement roles that I'm seeing posted than ever. Maybe you and a number of folks on the call here, I, I get reached out to by folks on LinkedIn all the time, and I'm just seeing more and more enablement roles posted. But in general, lots of rifts taking place in various organizations. We're approaching a very interesting time. Mm -hmm. And do those redundancies mainly affect startups or is that kind of all over the place? So I'm seeing it across the board, but in, it's my very limited view of my friends, former colleagues. I haven't really assessed any trends, but I, I'm seeing it at a number of different companies from public to private startups. And it's not just exclusively hitting L&D folks or enablement folks. It seems pretty universal. But again, that's not a data-backed assessment. It's more anecdotal. No, that's interesting. I think what I've heard from my conversation with folks in the U.S. as well is that it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy at this stage where a lot of mm. business leaders also panic. Exactly. Everybody's talking about recession, so everybody's downsizing and making people redundant and firing left and right to keep the costs down, you know? So from my outside view anyway, I'm sitting in Australia talking about the U.S. job market. But from my point of view... We still have to wait and see of how much of it is actually hype and how much is this is real. Right. But what is certainly real is that there's a lot of people that are looking for jobs right now. So for anybody looking for roles, definitely refer to Stephanie's job board. And also good news for anybody who wants to relocate to Australia. There's still a massive talent shortage over here. And I just had a conversation with a HR VP over here. And yeah, the talent shortage across all areas is still real. So Australia still has very limited immigration after the pandemic and people are still very hesitant. There's still very few university graduates actually coming in because we're again, still very reliant on international students entering the workforce. So 
anybody in the US looking for a job, come to Australia. We need you <laughs> here. We need you here. I love Australia. I may have to uh, see what's happening out there. That's right. That's right. Well, Devin, we might soon be sitting in one room together <laughs> doing this live stream. So next up, we have a book that you wanted to talk about. So Devin, you've done a bit of reading recently. I sure have. Tell us what this book is all about. All right. So today we are going to talk about The Transparent Leader by Todd Capone. So for starters, let me just preface this with I am a huge Todd Capone fan. I'm obsessed with his first book, The Transparency Sale. I usually have any new person on my enablement team read it when they join because it's just one of the most real looks at like selling authentically, being a human. But a little background on Todd. So Todd is also the host of the Sales History Podcast. He shares awesome insights and thought-provoking LinkedIn posts about sales, sales history, brain science, and of course, transparency. So transparency is threaded through everything he does. And as I mentioned, I'm a huge fan. So he's actually spoken at a number of kickoff events I've hosted in previous roles on the topic of transparent negotiation. So needless to say, when I saw that he had a new book on the transparent sales leadership, I hit pre-order and I think I wrote you right away, Felix, and I'm like, I'm doing a book report. So here we are. I am going to start with my overall review. The transparent leader gets a solid A from me. It is super easy to read, succinct, data-backed insights fueled by awesome real-world stories and anecdotes, as I mentioned, tons of brain science on why people do the things they do, what motivates and inspires. And the best part, there are tons of frameworks to take the knowledge Todd shares to apply to your day-to-day. -day. I'm going to dig into some of my favorite parts of the book in just a second, but the only bad part about the book is that it fell apart as I was reading it. Now, it may have been the 100-degree weather, but I had to binder clip it back together. So note to the publisher on that. That's the, literally the only bad thing about the book. <laughs> I'm glad nobody got injured. <laughs> I was reading it in the pool, and the pages were flying out as I was going, and I was like, oh my gosh. So anyway, back to the book. So part of why I think Todd's content resonates so much with me is that he is a sales enabler at heart and in practice, and he really leans into the role that enablement plays to support a highly effective new approach to laser-focused strategic sales. So in the book, he shares insights on how to be thoughtful and methodical in planning and making sure that we are doing everything we can to preserve our greatest resource, which is time. So I think we all know processes and best practices are great for methodically completing tasks. And Todd does all of that and he covers all of that, but he also looks into the brain science and the environment. And I know we talked a little bit about environment and hiring, but he looks at how the environment can inspire employees to be even more effective. So I'm going to give you like a brief list of my takeaways because there was so much in this book that was just incredibly valuable. But as I mentioned before, I'll say it again, this is a must read for sales leaders, enablers, and folks who know that there is a better way to be highly effective, but keep getting forced back into the status quo when it comes to things that are generally pretty standard, like forecasting, qualification, expectation setting, and execution. And just for the record, I, as I was reading this book, I texted it to all of the folks that were on my sales enablement team and who I worked with in the past and just letting them know, like, you need to read this. So a few standout takeaways that I keep thinking about are the concept of under-promise and over-deliver, which I always talk about. I'm like, it's so great. You should always under-promise and over-deliver. Todd leans into the fact that this doesn't really work. 
especially if you try to employ this over a long period of time. And more importantly, that it could actually set worse expectations for the people you work with and your manager, especially if they expect you to do this. So like if you're forecasting your quarter and you always come in really low, your manager may expect you to deliver much higher than you actually can. So his whole thing is say what you're going to do and do it well. The other thing that I love and I, I want to start thinking about my life this way is time as capital. So there's a quote in the book. So as I mentioned, Todd like loves sales history and old sales books and reading. There's a quote and I want to make sure I get it right that says your time is your capital, your stock and trade. It's the only type of capital that costs you nothing to get and everything to lose. The successful salesman hoards minutes and hours as a miser hoards gold. I think that's incredible. I don't know if you feel like your time is capital, Felix, but now I do. It is very important to me. It is everything I would say. <laughs> you can always make another dollar, but you can never make another minute. This is true. Yeah, I think that is absolutely true. Yeah. That sounds incredibly interesting. I think I'll dig into that one next. Todd Capone yeah. will share the link to the Amazon listing in the show notes as well for anybody who's interested. Yeah. And very quickly, if I may, because you know, I just, I need to talk about Todd for another minute. There's two frameworks that Todd talks about in the book, and I'm obsessed with frameworks, but these are actually like relatable frameworks that you can apply, but they also challenge the status quo, which so many of us get hung up on. So I'll leave you with the five F's. I won't get into the second one, but Todd focuses on focus, field, fundamentals, forecast, and fun. And a key thing that he talks about it, if I may, because it's so relevant to what we were talking about with, with Roderick and what you guys were talking about with hiring. And it's about bringing in the right people and ensuring they have the right tech and resources in place to be successful. And so there's one anecdote that I just, I have to share with you because it's spot on. Todd was working with a company in, in a consulting capacity, I think, and they asked him to interview an amazing sales candidate that they brought in. And they were talking about how she's been in the industry for two decades. She has an incredible Rolodex, blah, blah, blah. And after talking to her, Todd was like, she's great, but she's not a right fit for this business. This is not the right environment for her. This is not the right sale that this company is running. And hiring this person could make or break the business. And so as I was listening to your interview with Roderick, I was thinking about hiring the right personas and the ideal rep profile, right? And so we just talked about, like, I've lived this in previous roles where we hired so many amazing sellers who just floundered in our organization. So I'll save the rest for everybody else, but there are so many good nuggets on rethinking how we forecast, enablement, moving the needle, and, and so much more. So go read it. I was not endorsed or funded to support this book. It's that good. So please check it out. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Send me your Amazon affiliate link and we'll... Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> real side income for you, Devin. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. No, that sounds really interesting. And Todd's been somebody that I've been following for a while now. So uh, really value those insights from Todd. So uh, you sold it to me. It's on my reading list. All right. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So next up, I want to talk about a book that I've been reading because it's about a topic that I've been thinking about a lot, which is customer success. And for anybody who's familiar with the sales enablement space and is also thinking about expanding into revenue enablement and having a more holistic approach to enablement. This book is definitely something that I would recommend. And a lot of the things mentioned in this book is also a reflection of things that I've come across and solutions that I've worked on in my work with clients. So 
it's definitely a very, very practical, pragmatic, and actually not talking about just wild frameworks that have no relation to reality, but it's a reflection of the things that are happening out there and the, the solutions that are being developed for customer success teams and views that are being used to actually analyze customer success. And in this book, what I found particularly interesting in this book is how they were breaking down the laws of customer success. They break down the 10 laws of customer success. I want to touch on a couple of those. Law number one, sell to the right customer. I think that was very interesting. And this is something that I come across in my work with clients over and over again. It's been a while ago, but I worked with a organization. It was actually a SaaS company, about 500 employees. They were quite successful, but they had a lot of issue with customer churn and very limited upsell. When we did the deep dive into the reasons for that, we saw that there was a disconnect between the personas being used in marketing activity, the personas being sold to buy sales, and the actual personas that customer success saw get the greatest value out of the product. You know, So each one of those departments were actually working towards a different goal. Marketing worked towards a persona that wasn't actually the ideal customer. Sales were only selling to the people that were easy prey, so to speak, and were most likely to <laughs> make a purchase decision. And then customer success then saw that only a fraction of those people actually got great value out of their product. So very, very inefficient way to operate. And this chapter here about selling to the right customer actually talks about customer success and sales collaborating and actually identifying not where you can close an easy sell, but who are the customers that actually get the greatest value out of the product and align on that front. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, if you then extend that into marketing, you gain even greater value out of that. So I think something really interesting here, the other point I also want to emphasize here from that book is the relentlessly monitor and manage customer health. So this is all about actually tracking the health status of a customer as part of the customer success journey, right? So essentially establishing a range of values that you track to assess whether a customer actually has a good relationship with your business and with your customer success team, right? So those are the things like, do they respond to your requests or do they come back to you with the information that they need? Do they engage with the content? What is the usage like? Do you see increased patterns of usage? What's the uptake of training sessions and so on? So there's a whole lot of variables depending on what sort of indicators, like lagging indicators you can see in terms of customers actually getting value out of your product and actually making the monitoring of those variables part of your customer success journey is a really effective way to identify issues early and also identify really high potential customers for upsell and cross-sell and for customers to be involved in marketing activity really early on. So I think, again, something that I don't see being done very often and a very pragmatic tool to be put in place in order to actually gain that value from customers and making sure that customers actually get the maximum amount of value out of your product as well. The other thing also that has been talked about here is you can no longer build loyalty through personal relationships. That was all about utilizing customer feedback and creating a feedback loop for the benefit of the product and actually developing the product based on customer feedback and on customer input. And there's a whole lot of channels you can establish that are not only beneficial for your business, but also beneficial for the customer in terms of 
being able to interact with your customer success team, but also being able to interact with other customers and having those conversations around best practice around the product usage and being able to gain input from other users. And I think, again, that feedback loop is often something that is being talked about from an analytics perspective, but that call to the feedback, I think, still underutilized, not only from a sales perspective, as we spoke about earlier, very few companies that I interact with still run win-loss analysis. Yeah. And I think this is another reflection of that shortcoming in terms of the feedback loops that there's very few channels actually being established through customer success teams for customers to provide feedback and also for customers to interact with other customers. So Devin, from your point of view, is, are these areas that have been prominent in your revenue enablement work? Is there anything new in there or is that, am I preaching to the converted here? Well, with me, you're preaching to the converted because as we were talking about, I've been obsessed and practicing CS enablement for quite a while. But I think I mentioned to you, I bought this book and I've thumbed through it, but there is so much valuable information that I am not employing as effectively as I could. So I'm going to take it out of the old bookshelf and get my little tabbies out to go through it. But something you said, I think it was the first scenario you shared, got me thinking about what we were just talking about with time as the most valuable resource. And I'm thinking about all of the time wasted rallying everyone together or not rallying everyone together on an aligned strategy and having all of your core, very expensive teams going off and doing their own thing because they think it's best rather than taking a minute, coming together, aligning on a strategy, a super laser focused approach and going to market together, singing off that same sheet of music. And then to your final point is using feedback to shape an improvement in our approach and how we move forward. So there's so many good nuggets in what you shared. And I think an opportunity for me to up my game a little bit by checking this book out. So I love it. I think it's a great resource, as I said, very pragmatic, so I can definitely recommend it. I think the only negative about this book that I find is that, again, it's we've spoken about in various episodes before as well, is that we're still dealing with a bit of a tech echo chamber. <laughs> yes. A lot of the sources and a lot of the voices quoted in this book are from the tech space. Yeah. So I want to hear more about those really exotic industries and those random industries. I want to hear about what this customer success looks like in the manufacturing business or in travel, yeah. you know, like, or in retail. And I think it's not only SaaS that we should be looking at for those best practices or for inspiration. I think this is the only shortcoming of this book. So I would give it a, I would also give it an A. Ah. If you want to hear about best practice in SaaS, I would give it an A. If you are also interested in actually expanding horizons into other industries, I would give it a B probably. But either way, you can't go wrong with reading it. I think it's really interesting. And as I said, a lot of the approaches and a lot of the concepts that they talk about, I've come across in my work. So it is definitely pragmatic and usable for the real world. I love it. All right. So next up, we have a article or a press release from Gartner that we want to talk about. Hot off the presses. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I'll talk about Gartner in a second. I want you before I am a bit, if I had to decide between mad and disappointed, it's probably mad. Oh. In Gartner's case. All right. We'll talk about that in a second, but what's this press release all about? Okay. Well, I'll keep this brief because I want to hear what you're so mad about. But this press release from Gartner says that marketing leaders must reconceive their digital experience and sales enablement to help virtual buying groups reach better outcomes. 
That is a mouthful. So what does it all mean? I will tell you in as few words as possible. So in a recent study from November through December 2021 of 725 B2B buyers, it was determined that 72% of these buyers reported completing a significant purchase by ordering and paying online. So what they're saying is B2B buyers are, it seem to be more and more interested in digital commerce, but are not always able to make successful purchases online because companies are not usually set up to deliver an effective buying experience this way. Oftentimes, when a customer is in their own digital buying experience and a seller has to get involved, it's sometimes halfway through the process. It can lead to a very mediocre buying experience. But this report really digs into the importance or the why behind building a meaningful customer learning experience to drive better deals, more closed one deals, and a better customer experience. So they basically say that if a company has the infrastructure to support any sort of digital buying experience, they should also have the learning support to make this experience effortless and seamless for buyers. They also mentioned that when there is learning available for buyers, it tends to be super generic, really basic, or I think they call it shallow, and it barely checks the boxes to get a buyer who wants to do things on their own what they need. So that's where enablement comes in, working with in partnership with marketing and sales to create a multi-channel learning experience that actually includes self-guided, maybe sometimes even semi-customized learning paths with the right content and tools that incorporates that blend of when the seller comes in and when maybe we're using AI to facilitate the learning and buying experience. But really, it's highlighting the need to empower buyers to make better decisions and, again, drive a better experience. So I'll give you the recommendations that Gartner makes at the end of the article. It's your key takeaways here. They basically say that marketing and enablement need to partner to provide buyers information and tools to give them the comfort and the peace of mind to make a purchase, eliminate purchase regret or buyer's remorse, offer these digital first tools to give buyers the ability to create buy-in in their organization so that they can educate internally, again, without having to engage with a seller, and then to create these multi-channel learning paths that drive self-guided learning and decision confidence in our buyers. So I thought this was quite interesting, and I know we're, we're going to rant about Gartner in a minute, but I wanted to get your opinion, Felix, to see what your experience has been getting marketing and enablement to partner on, let's call it customer enablement, and to facilitate the customer experience. Yeah, I think there's still a gap. I think it's important to be really clear about what digital commerce or e-commerce in the B2B context actually means. Yeah. Whether it's just about actually enabling the actual transaction, so placing an order, or whether it is a certain part of the buyer journey or what that looks like. So I think there is, again, a few organizations that actually have gone through the exercise of mapping the buyer journey and actually thinking about that. I think when it comes to actually buyer journey mapping, marketing really on top of the funnel, you know, like they're more likely to go through the exercise, whereas sales that say, okay, we just run our sales process and then just manually send everything through. So they're all protective about their interaction with the buyer and don't really think about that multi-channel approach. Mm. So that's part of my experience. I think there's still a lot of improvement to be done. You know, I think 
as always, the buyer journey should be the basis for everything that's being done from a marketing and from a sales perspective. So I think that's the very first step in the evolution. And then after that, we can become fancy with the way we actually position all those different tools, all those learning resources, and then actually enabling the transaction online as well. I think the definition of e-commerce and B2B is also something that varies quite significantly. Big time. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, the research that I read indicates that a lot of buyers are actually comfortable with placing high value orders online, like without actual seller interactions. So yeah. I think in this scenario, sales almost becomes a front-loaded customer success function in the sense of <laughs> making customer successful in making an educated buying decision, right? Not making customers successful and actually using the product effectively, but yeah. making them successful in making a buying decision and actually having those sort of variable touch points or designing the buyer journey in a way that those touch points are available if needed for sales to support that journey. So I think that's probably best practice, but it's not something that I don't come across very often. And next up, we have a article from Mike Kunkel from his website, mikekunkel.com, transforming sales results. What is that article all about, Devin? Well, first, I'm very excited to cover this article, but did you want to share your Gartner rant? Oh, thanks for reminding me. Are you feeling a little bit warmer and fuzzier in your heart about it now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not actually. <laughs> okay. I'm just suppressing my negative feelings, but my rant is about their marketing team and actually their usage of gated content. Gartner pretty much has all the data they could possibly want from me, right? If they want any more, <laughs> like, I don't know what I would have to share with them, my electricity bill maybe, but <laughs> they pretty much have everything that they could possibly want from me. And they send me a newsletter and there are one, two, three, four, five items, not including the requested demo box. And all five items in the newsletter are gated, right? So oh, no. with every single one of them, I'm interested in all of them. I'm interested in reading all of them. But if I wanted to consume this content, I would have to enter my, my details over and over and over again. So mm -mm. Gartner, what's going on? What's going on? It's, it's like it's 2010, right? It's just form overload. The goal is consumption, right? The goal is not data capture. So let's, let's reduce friction here and let's just make it available please please your content is great i love the gartner content but this really stops me from consuming it so please make it happen if anybody's listening from gartner anyway that's my run <laughs> that is fair i'm glad you got to share that i did not know and that would terribly frustrate me that's right yeah i'm sorry guys i get wound up it's gonna be okay it's gonna be okay you got it off your chest and maybe they're listening that's right now to warm and fuzzy insights from Mike Kunkel. So there are limits to what sales enablement can't fix. What are those limits, Devin? This is true. Sales enablement can't fix it all. I know we want to. And I want to just call out, Mike at the top of this article says the target audience is sales leaders and the C-suite. That said, I definitely found a ton of value for myself as an enabler and also some very validating points that address a lot of my personal biggest challenges in executing and achieving success. So it includes some level setting insights about the enablement landscape, as well as some of, as the title says, challenges, inconsistencies and problems facing the practice today. So I do want to dig into some of the specifics. The article discusses how 
the definition of enablement is still so varied across different companies, leaders, industries, and even enablers. And Felix, I know you and I have spoken about this at length. And from my perspective, this can be really challenging for folks in enablement roles who are maybe seeking a new role or looking for advice or trying to drive consistency in the function and how we execute. So he also talks about the varying names of the function itself, like revenue enablement, buyer enablement, go-to-market enablement, and more, which he proposes could further confuse the effort to drive consistency in the what, why, and how of the function itself. I know personally, and I'm sure many folks can relate, my very early enablement roles were titled sales productivity, sales excellence, and things like that. And I think we're still trying to find what are the standard roles and what does it all mean? But I, I think the inconsistencies in the function, in the titles, is a challenge in the wild too, you know? So there are so many companies that are looking for enablement and they're looking, you know, they're titling their jobs with the buzzy enablement titles, revenue enablement, go-to-market enablement, but they're really looking for something totally different from what that role should actually do. And so a good example is a company I was talking to who thought they were looking for sales enablement, but they really wanted to build out a RevOps function, but they were using enablement as this blanket term for the need to improve processes and execution. So I call it an actual problem. Additionally, Mike talks about the lack of manager enablement in so many programs. And I think all of us know it's in every one of the books behind me that manager enablement is so important. Manager coaching reinforcement is just, it's the linchpin to the success of any enablement program, but it's so often is the thing that gets ignored. The other thing that I thought was interesting is Mike shines a light on a trend, I guess it's a trend, where in an effort to stand out, enablement professionals will sometimes build bespoke and custom approaches to very standard processes and programs every time they deploy an initiative. So rather than leveraging existing methods and proven techniques to drive performance, they're following their own path, continuing to make it more difficult to define best practices for the function and in turn working harder, not smarter. So I do want to take Another, just dig in a little bit deeper, because Mike looks at leadership who talks the talk but doesn't walk the walk, meaning shiny objects seem to be everywhere these days and pretty much my entire enablement career. Not sure if you can relate, Felix. They are incredibly distracting. And when I think of shiny objects now, all I think about is the new James Webb telescope images. I don't know if you saw those. They're so phenomenal. But enablement can only shout so loud about what our teams can absorb pushing the focus on impact, providing consistency and strategy and approach and execution to create an environment where our reps can thrive and stay disciplined and focused. And I want to talk about Todd's book a little bit, but he gets into consistent leadership and aligning function. So we're all moving together in lockstep. But the end result here is like, if leadership doesn't understand the what, why, and how, and the importance of consistent alignment and methodical approach, everything could potentially fail. So before I take too much of our time here, the best section of this article is about the very unrealistic expectations for enablement. And to quote Mike, expecting sales enablement to fix problems that it can't. And how more often than not, leaders in enablement will leverage training as a solution to a problem it simply can't solve. Training is easy. It's a quick fix. But we know, I think all of the enablers listening now, it doesn't move the needle, especially when we have to make dramatic changes in the organization. So without the right leadership, the right environment, the right alignment on strategy and approach, enablement simply 
can't be successful. And there's a quote that I love that he says, even the best sales enablement plans won't produce world-class results in a subpar environment. And then, of course, Mike does share his frameworks and approaches for tackling some of this and driving more of that organizational strategic planning and alignment to really move the needle. But at the end of the day, not having a strategy, not having a consistent approach and not having leadership buy-in can make or break enablement success. I could probably spend the next two hours talking about this article, but I know we're almost up on time. So I'll give you another highly recommend to read. I love all of Mike's thought leadership is just so interesting and so applicable to the work that we do. I know we talked about some frameworks that exist in the ether that you can't really apply. So much of what Mike shares is so easy to apply in the real world. So this was a great one. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting, as you said, there's limits to what sales enablement can actually achieve or overcome. Sales enablement at the end of the day is about optimizing what's already there, right? You can't create those essential elements of a functioning business <laughs> with sales enablement. Yeah, You need the building blocks, as he calls them, uh, they need to be there and then you need to maximize the impact of them. It's so interesting. Like, again, I'm sure you've experienced this where enablement gets the request, like you have to reduce ramp by four months, but nobody wants to acknowledge that we don't have a sales process. We don't have resources to support the sales cycle. We don't have standard execution methods. How are we supposed to do that? Okay. So it's really saying enablement, you can go do this and fix this thing. Right. And it's really highlighting, we need the infrastructure, the support and the strategic alignment to be as effective as possible. Absolutely. On that note, major announcement from my end. So whoever's been listening to my content for a while now knows that I'm a massive Mike Kunkel fan. And I truly believe that his book, The Building Blocks of Sales Enablement, is pretty much the most complete body of knowledge that has been captured around sales enablement. So he pretty much captures all the ins and outs, plus applies systems thinking, which is very, very helpful in actually understanding the different concepts and the different building blocks of sales enablement. And I've been wanting to create an online course for a while now, just to scale the sort of work that I do from a consulting perspective with my clients to a broader audience and work closer with the sales enablement community. And when I told Mike about that, he told me, hey, I always wanted to create a course about the building blocks of sales enablement. And here we are creating a course together based on the building blocks of sales enablement. And oh my gosh, it is happening. Mike and I are working 24 seven on creating this course for everybody. And if you are interested in learning more about this course, we have a website on my company's website. So my company's FFWD. The website is goffwd.com slash blocks. And on this page, you can see what this course is all about, the sort of modules that we have in the course and how the framework essentially is being utilized to create a learning experience. So what we aim to do is to create a curriculum based on the building blocks of sales enablement to based on adult learning principles, actually creating a framework that allows you to operationalize those building blocks and those insights. So goal number one is to understand all the ins and outs of the building blocks. And then goal number two is to create a strategy based on those building blocks. And then goal number three is to implement those initiatives that you formalize based on that strategy. And the course will essentially create that learning path for sales enablement professionals, sales leaders, and also for business owners of startups to actually create that strategy and implement it. And I'm really excited about this one. 
I've been a big fan of Mike Cargill's for a while now, and it's a privilege to be working with him on this project. And for anybody who is interested in staying up to date with this project, so we're planning on launching in September, which was shockingly close. Oh my gosh. For anybody who's interested in staying up to date and also wants to provide feedback on the direction that we're taking, please make sure to visit goffwd.com slash blogs. And here you can subscribe for updates and also for a pre-launch offer, which will be a discounted access to the course. And yeah, can't wait to share more with you. This is incredible. I am personally very excited to see this come to life. So sign me up. I'm in. I will sign myself up, not to worry. <laughs> no, thank you so much, Devin. Can't wait for your feedback either. But enough of my personal work projects. A couple more items that we quickly wanted to cover. There was a article that you wanted to share about the metaverse, Devin. It's from MetMet to Metaverse. Oh, you know, I love the metaverse. Have we finally found a useful application of the metaverse? Is that what's happening? I'm going to say TBD on that one. So this article, this was an interesting one. It starts with a, a Mad Men quote from Don Draper about embracing change, which first made me realize I haven't rewatched Mad Men in a very long time. So possibly a good weekend activity. But that said, the article goes on to state that the paradigm for effective selling has changed and spends time on the changing world and impact of Web 3.0, also referred to as Web 3. So a little fun fact about me, I earned my master's degree in media studies about 15 years ago at this point. And at that time, it was all about Web 2.0. It was about blogs, social media, Friendster, MySpace, CSS, all that fun stuff. Now we're in Web 3.0, which is still being defined, as far as I can tell, with NFTs, cryptocurrency, and the metaverse. So it's pretty wild. But this article focused on sales enablement's role in leveraging automation and new technology to drive a hyper-customized buying experience. And I feel like everything we've read and listened to today, Felix, is all about like customizing the experience for your buyer, treating them like a person, meeting them where they are. So... The takeaways from this, this article aren't terribly surprising, but I think we've heard this a lot. Buying and selling is changing at an incredibly rapid pace. And as people, we are moving to a almost fully virtual and, and really, I guess, mostly hybrid world. And this really changed the way people are buying and the way that we need to sell. So we can't rely on the fancy dinners and the baseball games and all of that stuff to close deals. And I know I shared a story with you a couple months back on someone on our sales team was ready to take their prospect team out to dinner and no one lived in the same state anymore here in the U.S. So people need to get creative in how they're engaging. And again, we know understanding our buyers and, and meeting them where they are is essential to getting things done. So you mentioned this as well. Buyers' expectations are changing. They're different. We can't show up and do a pre-can demo, pre-can pitch. Buyers have access to more information than they ever have before. And I feel like we say this every year, but the amount of information they have continues to expand from forums to Reddit to Glassdoor. People are buyers who are people. They know more about our companies, our products, our CEOs, our challenges. And we have to be super personalized and hyper-targeted in how we reach out to them and understand where are they in the process? How do we make sure we're not creating redundancies? We're not wasting their time. So the article states that the metaverse and Web 3.0 can be game changing when it comes to the enablement space and selling. And they say that within the next five years, 25% of consumers will spend at least one hour per day in the metaverse for work, learning and fun. 
So based on that, the recommendation is that companies start to shift their approach now and start to think about how they're going to tackle buyer engagement in these virtual environments to create that truly immersive experience for our buyers that's agnostic of location, time zone, and other factors. So really working to thread the needle between our reality and the world's beyond what we don't know to, again, ensure that we are sharing relevant content with our prospects at all time. So the takeaway here for us enablers is to really make sure that we're empowering our sellers to execute in a virtual world now where we currently sit and to leverage that forward thinking technology strategy to make sure that we are staying on the cutting edge of where our buyers are. And so to your earlier question, have we completely unlocked the metaverse? No, I think there's so many different ways this can go. So what I want to ask you, Felix, is what are your thoughts on Web3 or Web3.0 and virtual or augmented reality methods making their way into the enablement and L&D space? Look, I think any new digital channel is like a precious flower. Like you need to, <laughs> we need to nurture it and make sure that it grows to be healthy and strong before it can be utilized in ways that might not be core to the experience. My suspicion is that the people that will be spending, was it one hour a day? At least one hour a day. Yes. <laughs> At least one hour a day in the metaverse that initially their goal is not to be sold to. Right. So I think it's something to keep on the radar and maybe to run a pilot and do some hackathons around that and yeah. develop some concepts. I think that's a sort of notion that companies should go in with in tackling the metaverse. But from my point of view, it's not worth a bet at the moment in terms of we shift everything. We shift our long-term strategic focus onto the metaverse. I think it's something to keep on the radar. Yep. Just like in media. So I worked in media previously and connected TVs back in the days. Like part of what we sold was online video advertising inventory. And the majority of the inventory that we had was on desktop devices. Then a, mm. I think back then, like in 2010, it would have been around 10% maybe on mobile. And I think in 2012, there was 1% on connected TVs. And that ratio has completely shifted, right? Like there's so many people now watching internet content on connected TVs. And if we would have put all our eggs in one basket and completely served advertising to all the connected TV content, people wouldn't have taken it up like that. So I think you need to wait for those channels to become mature enough until they can actually be used as a marketing and sales channel. Yeah. It will probably be a while until people actually develop the tolerance for sales to take place in the metaverse, I would say. Yeah. Even training, which is like so much of virtual reality in the training world is being used in the medical space, Yeah, practicing surgery and doing all that. And so I had a few folks on my team talk about bringing virtual reality into our organization for onboarding. And my first thought, because I guess I'm a many years older, was like, well, how are we going to afford headsets for everybody? And they're like, no, there's a better way. And so to your point, the technology is changing so rapidly and the application is going to evolve so fast that Keeping our fingers on the pulse is important, but I'm not making any dramatic changes yet either. No, no, no. As you said, you know, like from a training perspective, like from a sales enablement interacting with sellers, I think that's probably a greater potential there because you're essentially in that contained ecosystem and everybody's got the same goal in that context of learning and being able to apply those learnings in a more interactive environment. So I think in that sense, 
the metaverse has probably greater application and greater utility than it would be from a consumer perspective. Totally. Cool. We're running out of time, but I briefly just wanted to touch on a couple of things. So last month we had uh, requests about events taking place in the sales enablement space. There's just a few events that I want to call out. On September 7th and 8th, there's the Sales Enablement Summit coming up, organized by the Sales Enablement Collective, Sales Enablement Summit in San Francisco. So worthwhile checking out if you're in the area or if you're able to travel. The other event that's taking place simultaneously is the Chief Revenue Officer Summit. So for those Chief Revenue Officers out there or adjacent roles, this might be something worthwhile checking out. So that's taking place exactly at the same time at the same place in San Francisco. And then we also have the SES Experience 2022 coming up, organized by the Sales Enablement Society. So that's taking place on September 28th till 30th in Atlanta, Georgia. Always a fun place to visit. So anybody who's keen to check that one out, have a look. That's taking place again at the end of September. And yeah, Devin, there's not much left to say. I wanted to rant a little bit about LinkedIn, but I think I might save that for <laughs> next month. Let's save it and we can like fester on all of the rants. Is that, nah, that's. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I might've count down until then. So we'll, we'll see. We'll okay. see. Of course, for anybody listening, you have to tune in to find out whether I've count down or not. Cliffhanger. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. So Devin, do you have any closing thoughts you want to share before we part ways today? Yeah, I have a few closing thoughts. I'll keep it brief first. As you know, check out The Transparent Leader and rethink the way you're doing one thing today or after you read the book. The second takeaway is if you have not seen the James Webb telescope images, you must right now go to Google and look because it will change your entire way of thinking and way of existing and, and just have you thinking for hours about parallel universes and wondering, do they have sales enablement in those other galaxies? I don't know. So <laughs> definitely check those out. But that is my takeaway. I spent hours just like immersing myself in these images. Amazing. Yeah, I, lo I love that space stuff. I recently watched a, you know, I love recommendations for streaming content always. Anybody subscribe to Disney Plus? They have an amazing documentary about NASA astronauts traveling to space to the ISS. Amazing imagery, amazing insight into the work of astronauts. I can't think of the name, unfortunately, now, but I'll drop it in the show notes as well. Second thought that I want to leave you with might sound like a random fact, but I think it's really relevant, especially if you're interested in personal development. So for those of you who didn't know, every cell of our body regenerates once every 10 years. So that means every 10 years, you're a completely new person, literally, right? So there's no cell that is the same that used to be there 10 years ago. So if you think about that, every step that you take now to develop yourself, to learn is part of that reinvention process and that new you that will literally be there in 10 years, right? So thank you so much for making this month of sales enablement part of that journey of your reinvention journey. I love doing this with you, Devin. Oh, I love best. talking to our audience and I can't wait for the next one. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Next time on the State of Sales Enablement, 